I promised last Sunday that in my second sermon from 2 Peter, we would slog through some pretty harsh and polemical words from the letter writer. I also suggested there might be a way to better understand the context so that we could actually appreciate this text a bit more. So let's see how we do on that. And just to up the ante, let me read a few more verses from chapter 2 that our lectionary skipped over for reasons that may become apparent as I read them. Beginning at verse 12, these people, referring to the false teachers, are like irrational animals, mere creatures of instinct born to be caught and killed. They slander what they do not understand, and as those creatures are destroyed, they also will be destroyed, suffering the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you, etc., etc. And then picking up at verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment that was handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to its own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mud. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. (laughs) Do any of you still wonder why 2 Peter doesn't get preached from very often? But what's actually going on here? Well, let's start by just noting that there is a cultural difference between then and now in terms of the value of polite discourse. In the church today, we couldn't speak like that publicly without being dismissed for violating basic norms for acceptable public speech. It just sounds mean-spirited to our ears. But then, Read some writings of our Anabaptist forebears. Even in the 16th century, when gospel truth was at stake, Anabaptists did not hold back their tongues. They may not have picked up a sword, they were not physically aggressive, but their words were sometimes sharp, quite sharp. So let's just admit a cultural difference in what is an acceptable way to speak. Secondly, let's think about what was likely happening in these churches that 2 Peter was addressing. To repeat briefly from last Sunday, the recipients of this letter were likely churches emerging in mostly urban areas around the Mediterranean where Greek and Roman values and culture dominated. These newer churches were being formed by Hellenized Greek-speaking Jews, that is, Jews who had already drifted far from their roots in Jerusalem, and by Gentiles who had no roots in communal Hebrew and Jewish values. And, most importantly, 
This was when the written accounts of the life of Jesus, our Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were only beginning to be written down and passed around. No one yet thought of those writings as scripture. Same for the letters of Paul. So the place of Jesus in the church was at risk. It needed to be defended. What did Paul mean, for instance, by calling the church the body of Christ? And did everyone agree that Christ, the Messiah being referred to, was the very same Jesus of Nazareth, the Jew from Galilee, whose earthly life ended on a Roman cross? Could the folks gathering around the Roman Empire continue to trust that Jesus had it right back there in Jerusalem years ago? Was Jesus indeed not just a renowned prophet who paid with his life, but also the anointed one, the Son of God? The answer was disputed especially in the heart of the Roman Empire, far away from Jerusalem. So yes, the place of Jesus in the church needed a vigorous defense. Because apparently this was more than just doctrinal drift. These were communities, in some cases, led by influential leaders who had lost their trust in Jesus and were enamored by their own growing wealth and power and began to lead the church with values and ethics that resembled the excesses of the Roman Empire far more than the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So at stake here in 2 Peter is not just something you could describe as doctrinal heresy. This was a denial of basic moral responsibility. It's one thing if the conflict is over theological differences only. If you are contending over the exact words to use to describe the nature of God and humankind. But it's a whole other level of urgency if leaders are pulling people away from Jesus altogether denying the validity of his ministry and his claims and saying his promised return is a hoax. If so-called Christian leaders convince their followers that there is no moral code based on the Hebrew tradition of Torah and enhanced by the life and teachings of Jesus, if they openly embrace the values of the Roman Empire and use wealth and power and sexuality to exploit others for their personal gain, then there is something to stand up against strongly. Strong forces of evil demand strong words and action in response. So let's be clear first that the false teachers being talked about in 2 Peter are not merely teachers the letter writer disagrees with. They are teachers who 
have essentially rejected the way of Jesus and have embraced the way of the empire. Now, understanding that context, that the church was facing a deadly threat from within, and that harsh discourse was more culturally acceptable, I think we can actually appreciate the passion and love the letter writer has for the church of Jesus Christ. So I think we can cut him some slack. In fact, let's ponder together whether this letter might even be seen as something we could look to as inspiration for today. Is that going too far? Maybe, but maybe not, given the extremes that we see today that get put out there in the name of Christianity, that do not in the least resemble Jesus of Nazareth, but look an awful lot like purely secular, self-centered circling of the wagons, or that slap the name of Jesus on top of the same pile of racist and patriarchal language that white supremacists have used for generations, or Christian nationalists who push for a so-called Christian nation state to advance the kingdom of God, at what point do we just stop and call them out as false? as Christian pretenders. The Christian church today is no less at risk than was the church of 100 AD. We are also growing up in places far away from our roots, immersed in the values and practices of the empire of a way of life that honors wealth and exploitation and self-indulgence and abuse of power and violence. The church and the empire are incompatible. They are just as much at odds today in our world as they were in the first century Mediterranean world. So let's not be fearful of calling a spade a spade. If it looks like an empire, quacks like an empire, and walks like an empire, it's an empire. And we should be able to say so in the spirit of a biblical prophet. But if it looks like Jesus, talks like Jesus, and walks like Jesus, then it's Jesus. And we should be able to embrace it. Now, of course, caution is in order. We should use our words carefully and judiciously. We should use a tone of voice that people can actually hear instead of shutting us off before they heard what we said. And we should be humble enough to know that sometimes we don't see the whole picture. But there is a place 
for speaking truth and not apologizing for it. Let's just choose the right things to get urgent about. These days, it's easy to get fired up and mean-spirited about anything we believe in. Let's reserve our open calling out of others for those so-called Christians who have actually and verifiably rejected the character of Jesus revealed in Scripture. Not just those that we have disagreements with. Doctrine and lifestyle and political differences we can and should sort out in the body of Christ with honesty and humility and charity and clarity and kindness. But denying the life and witness and character of Jesus, using Jesus as a prop for violence and nationalism and racist ideology, then bold prophetic words and witness are much needed. And we as a church should be ready to stand up and speak out. So I say let's bring our wholehearted and whole-bodied commitment to Jesus with us whenever we gather as a church and whenever we go out into the world. And especially whenever we gather at the table of communion. The table that we are partaking of this morning is a place that is steeped in symbols of conflict. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus. At the table, we're reminded of the cost of standing up and speaking out. And we're also reminded of the new life and healing that is possible when the real human Jesus and the risen Messiah is host at the table and invites us all to come and dine.